Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Science under attack. That's our topic today. And stick around after the episode for another installment of This Week in Science History with Katie Love. We talk a lot on this podcast about how science is being attacked, and there's still plenty to talk about like the Trump administration's recent attacks on the Endangered Species Act. From the day the Endangered Species Act was first voted into legislation, it used the best available science to decide which animals were endangered and protected them accordingly, which is why it worked. But the Trump administration recently ruled that economic cost would be a consideration too. So instead of asking scientists which species need protection, we're focusing on whether it saves money to protect them. Our wildlife is in danger because of this, but let me hit pause and say that I wish this episode was only about the Endangered Species Act, but there's a larger trend we need to talk about. The Trump administration has sidelined science relentlessly, from refusing to protect us from toxic chemicals to withholding important medical information. And this has a real impact on our health and safety. To understand the scope and danger of this, I sat down with Dr. Jacob Carter. He's a research scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and he's the perfect person to talk to for understanding science's role in the policymaking process. Curious how science gets attacked? Jacob gives us some of the most egregious examples, and believe me, there were plenty of examples to choose from. If you're hungry for some metaphors, Jacob has the perfect one to explain why scientific censorship is a recipe for trouble. But perhaps most importantly, he explains what it is about science that has inspired every administration going back to Eisenhower to attack it. And that's why this episode is an important one, because this is a problem that didn't start with the Trump administration, and it certainly won't end with the Trump administration. Jacob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you've been tracking attacks on science by the current administration, and the number is staggering. What constitutes an attack on science? An attack on science, as the way that we define it, is any time there is undue political interference in a science-based issue uh, regarding a government decision. So the first part of the criteria is that that decision has to have some sort of scientific basis. There are government decisions that are made, believe it or not, that are not based in science. So when we're talking about undue political interference, it's sort of the second part of the criteria. This is any time that a political official is basing a decision that should be based on science on political ideology. So that would include scientists being censored, um, scientific reports being suppressed, scientific data or results being manipulated to fit a political idea. Basically, a political decision that's being made that is not in line with the best available scientific evidence. So when you say manipulating the science, is that cherry picking what what you want to focus on? Or is that actually changing the text of a report? What exactly is that? Uh, It could be either or. So cherry picking data, which we've actually seen happen 
in Endangered Species Act uh, or listing assessments. So there was actually a peer review of a report on the gray wolf and whether or not the government should delist the gray wolf across the entire United States. So currently it's delisted in a couple of states, but the administration is trying to delist this endangered species across the entire nation. And so there's a new process that the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the federal agency that looks at these endangered species assessments and assesses whether or not a species should be listed under the Endangered Species Act or whether or not it should be delisted. And part of this process, and they, they had this new process that they added on to this listing or delisting process, was to do a peer review of the risk assessment um, by academics or experts that know about that species and the conservation of that species. So in this peer review process, what the experts actually saw was that the administration had been cherry picking data. So basically selecting the studies, the data out there, um, some of them, right, but not all of them, to basically make a case to delist the gray wolf. Whereas the scientists said after this peer review that there was not a strong case. So that's one example of how you can manipulate scientific results to fit what you want in your political agenda. But it could also be uh, tailoring information text in a scientific report as well. And we saw that under the George W. Bush administration, for example, when they wanted to downplay the connection between humans and climate change. And that happened directly at the the level of the White House. So you raise an interesting point. This is not something that's new. It's not just happening in this administration. Does it happen in every administration or... That's a great question and one that we have tried to answer. And so me and uh, one of my colleagues, Emily Berman, we looked back at every administration dating back to the Eisenhower administration. And what we found is that the answer to that question is yes. Under every administration, we can find some example of where there has political been political interference in science-based decision-making. It doesn't matter if it's a Republican administration. It doesn't matter if it's a Democratic administration. Everybody politicizes uh, science-based decision-making. And that's because science is really powerful. Science is still our best system of gathering knowledge. And everybody knows that. Uh, Political officials know that. And so they want science on their side. And if that means that they need to cherry pick results, if they need to suppress scientists, uh, if they need to hide scientific reports to fit their political decisions, they will do it. You actually worked at the Environmental Protection Agency before coming to UCS. What did you do there and what could you see from inside the agency? So I was a postdoctoral fellow with the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education, and I was brought on to work with the what is now the Office of Land and Emergency Management at the Environmental Protection Agency. So if you're not familiar with what this office does, they oversee our 
uh, waste management, our recycling programs. Uh, they also oversee the cleanup of sites that have a lot of chemicals that are cancer-causing, for example. So Superfund sites is a, is a good example of this. So these are sites that um, industries have usually left behind that have chemicals that are generally the most um, hazardous chemicals known to mankind. And I was brought on as a climate change scientist to work specifically to see if climate change would be impacting these contaminated sites in the future. So one thing that I was charged with doing was incorporating climate change into future flood risk because we know that climate change is making floods progressively worse. So we're seeing more frequent and more extreme floods, and we believe that is tied to climate change. You did work on a survey recently or within the past year of scientists, I believe it was at the EPA, were there other agencies as well? Yes, we uh, surveyed 16 different science-based federal agencies in the survey. And what were you, what, what sorts of information were you gathering? We were gathering lots of information, but information that pertained to getting a pulse on the state of science, according to the federal scientific experts who work within that federal agency. So we wanted to know what were the strongest barriers to their work. Was it limited staff capacity? Was it limited resources? Was there political interference occurring in their work? What did they view as scientific integrity? Did they feel that the agency was adhering to a scientific integrity policy, which is a policy that many of these agencies have in place to prevent this type of political interference and science-based decision-making from happening? So did the federal scientific experts feel like the agency was adhering to that policy. Did these federal scientific experts feel like there was censorship going on? Were they asked to omit certain words from their work that were viewed as politically contentious? Those types of things we were asking about, just to get a sense of, is this a work environment that is really friendly to scientists, federal scientists, and the work that they're producing, or is it not? And what did you find? Largely across the board, we find that, not to anybody's surprise, um, that it is not a great environment for federal scientists right now. Federal scientists are being censored. We had over 1,000 scientists, and in our view, that's 1,000 too many, saying that they have been censored, that they have been asked directly either by political officials or even by their own managers who may be career officials who have worked at the agency for a long time to not say certain words that are viewed as politically contentious. Words like climate change? Words like climate change, but I think, you know, some other words that are particularly, in my view, really ridiculous, like evidence-based, science-based. This was a case at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, that issued a ban on seven particular words, and that include evidence-based and science-based, which in the scientific community are words that are not 
viewed as politically contentious at all and that you use in your everyday work. I would think those would be non-negotiable words that scientists would use. Yeah, it was it was just really, really funny. I mean, in, in my mind, I think about, you know, uh, an Italian chef being asked not to use the word tomato with his yeah, kitchen garlic staff. Yeah, like... Or, uh, you're right, <laughs> oregano. Forget so it. What do you say, you know? Like, uh, hey, John, like... Uh, could you get those little red things for me? I mean, it just makes communication more difficult and it makes, you know, communicating your work especially difficult. But we actually do see scientists start to use different terminology um, without explicit orders to do so. And that is what we would call self-censorship. Right. That was uh, my my next question because it's one thing if you're being asked to leave something out but it but we've gotten to the point where scientists now are doing it on their own so so tell me about that so scientists will self-censor when they have and we know this from research authoritarian leaders who are basically controlling the message and here it is the scientific message And so if you see a colleague, for example, that steps out on the limb and does use climate change, for example, and then the administration fires that colleague, if you're somebody who has a family and can't risk losing your job, you're not going to step out on on the limb like your colleague did. You're going to find a workaround to maybe continue doing the work, but you're not going to use that term because you cannot risk your income, you cannot risk the support for your family. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. And if you have a sec, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the best ways to help us get noticed. It's quick and super easy. When you open Got Science in your podcast app, scroll down to the bottom to ratings and reviews and leave a comment. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at gotscienceucs. Now let's get back to our interview. So can you give me a few examples of attacks on science? Yeah, so I think one that is particularly egregious, and I want to talk a little bit more about ones that aren't climate change related, because we know, I think, at this point that this administration is not very friendly to climate change, and we do have a lot of attacks on science that deal with climate change. But this one is another censorship issue, but it deals with uh, family planning. So the administration um, asked doctors to not discuss with patients all the options for family planning, and specifically not to mention abortion as an option for their family planning. And this was done for uh, participants in a program called Title X. These are generally low-income individuals who are supported by this program um, through Health and Human Services, and they have specific doctors that they have to go see. 
And so now those doctors within that program will not be able to uh, speak with their patients about all the family planning options that are at their disposal. That is a form of censorship. I mean, can you imagine if the administration did this for some kind of treatment for cancer, for example? I'm sorry, you're not allowed to talk to your patients about this treatment when maybe it's a very viable treatment and you're not getting it because the administration doesn't like it that doesn't make sense we should be providing the public with the best available science that informs the best available healthcare. do you have a top three most egregious examples of of sidelining science One that comes off the top of my head is one that we saw from the get-go, which was, at the time, Administrator Scott Pruitt at the Environmental Protection Agency deciding uh, not to ban chlorpyrifos, which is a chemical that is known to particularly harm uh, children's brains um, and their development. So it leads to lower IQ. Um, can lead to uh, mental health issues later on in life. Um, so I think that was like particularly egregious because it's children. So and what what is that chemical used for? It is an insecticide. So it's used in a lot of, of different crops, especially out in the West, and it, it particularly affects uh, Latinx communities um, that that live in California, especially where these crops are dusted with this insecticide. Another one that uh, comes to mind because it happened recently, but I think it was just sort of illustrated the ridiculous nature of this administration and their disdain towards science was Sharpie Gate. <laughs> so the president drawing with a Sharpie an incorrect path of Hurricane Dorian and really standing by that. But the administration getting involved in actually requiring officials at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to stand behind that Sharpie marker decision was the real issue here. The third, I would say, is dismantling Endangered Species Act protections. So the Endangered Species Act has a listing process that has for a very long time since the act was uh, voted uh, into legislation to only be based on the best available science. The administration recently changed that process such that economic considerations are now going to be a factor in determining whether or not a species is listed, which doesn't make any sense. If there is a species at the brink of extinction, we shouldn't be pondering whether or not we're going to save money by saving that species. Our priorities should be saving that species, especially because humans, many times unknowingly, depend upon the ecosystem services benefits that these species provide to us. This could be a plant species that could hold a cure for Alzheimer's or cancer. And do we want that to go to extinct if we haven't discovered that benefit yet? There could also be unknown services that that plant or that particular mammalian species is providing to our ecosystem health that we haven't realized yet. But now we're inserting money into the equation. 
They also did some other things with the Endangered Species Act to attack it. Um, No longer will climate change be considered um, on whether or not it factors into whether a species will become endangered or not. It also allows fishermen and hunters to fish or hunt species that are listed as threatened. So while they may not be endangered, so this is sort of a step below endangered, the species population is still being considered at risk. But now, even if it's at risk, you can go and fish and hunt that species for sport. The Endangered Species Act was a bipartisan agreement when it was passed. There were very few legislators that voted against this legislation. And almost over 90% of Americans favor are in favor of the Endangered Species Act. Yet the administration completely dismantled this long-held process that everybody thought was great. So Jacob, what is what is the answer here? How do we turn things around? When, I, when I'm talking about these attacks on science and I get this question is I, I tell the scientific community to continue to call their legislators, which I know people hear a lot, but it really does make a difference because scientists are the experts. They understand a lot about these issues and their legislators want to hear from them. Something else that um, individuals can do when they're talking to their legislators is voice support for the Scientific Integrity Act. Um, Agencies have scientific integrity policies which are in place to deter this undue political interference in the science-based decision-making process. The issue is that those policies are not codified, so they don't have a lot of teeth to them. Basically, they could be overturned at any minute. But if we had legislation in place, it would make it easier to hold individuals accountable when there is political interference in science-based decision-making. And that's exactly what the Scientific Integrity Act would do. So voicing your support for that to get your legislators on board to support the Scientific Integrity Act and get that in place would help immensely. So my final question is, how, how quickly do you think we can turn things around? A lot of what's happened, I think, can be restored by bringing a lot of scientists back on. There were a lot of hiring freezes when this administration took over. There were scientists who left, there were scientists who fired, and their positions have never been refilled. And so you already had a capacity issue before this administration came in. Now it's even worse. And so I think a first step is just to get the workforce back on track because we need a lot of scientists to do the amount of science that our world needs right now to address the big issues. I think the second step is to get the Scientific Integrity Act in place to make sure that the future of scientific integrity at these agencies has legislation at its backbone to make sure that if these scientific integrity issues happen anymore, that those who are committing them can be held responsible. In terms of some rules that have been dismantled or rolled back by the administration that were science-based, that takes a little bit more time. Just because the, the process of getting regulations back on track, um, you know, can take 
two to three years um, for the agency to develop those rules, to develop those regulations. They have to go through a public comment period. Then the agency has to do its own review. It's a very lengthy process. And so anytime that we've had rules dismantled, like the Endangered Species Act one that I just talked about earlier, that takes time. Um, But it is something that is essential and we should absolutely do. I I think a fourth step that I would take is getting the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is the White House's Office of Science Policy, based of their science policy shop, back in functioning order. Well, Jacob, thanks so much for, for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This week in science history, we're going back to December 11th, 1997, when, after years of international negotiations, the Kyoto Protocol was adopted. The Kyoto Protocol is an international agreement through which countries committed to lower their global warming emissions. Unfortunately, while the United States was one of the original adopters in 1997, the U.S. Senate refused to ratify the treaty and we formally withdrew in 2001 before it went into force in February of 2005. But the Kyoto Protocol was only applicable through 2020, which is why negotiations moved on, and in December 2015, the international community adopted the Paris Climate Agreement. When the Paris Climate Agreement was created, it represented the culmination of 25 years of intense negotiations over how to confront the immense challenge of climate change, with lots of ups and downs along the way. The Paris Climate Agreement requires countries to put forward national climate action plans and to periodically report on their progress towards implementing those plans, but leaves it up to each country to determine the plan's content and level of ambition. This last feature has resulted in near universal participation in the agreement. Unfortunately, yet again, the United States did not follow through on our commitments. This time, it was the president who has moved to formally withdraw us from the agreement. But there are some signs of hope. A number of countries, including France, Norway, Sweden, and the United Kingdom, have set net zero emissions targets into national law. 22 countries and more than 200 states, provinces, and cities all over the world are members of the Under Two Coalition, committing to the level of emission reduction necessary to limit global warming to under 2 degrees Celsius by the end of this century. Here in the United States, nearly 4,000 states cities, counties, companies, and other institutions are members of the We Are Still In Coalition, which is committed to meeting the U.S. emissions goals under the Paris Agreement, despite President Trump's irresponsible decision to withdraw the United States from the agreement. And more than 200 companies, including Coca-Cola, Dell, Kellogg's, Pfizer, Procter & Gamble, and Sony, have adopted science-based targets quote, in line with what the latest climate science says is necessary to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. But will it be enough? The latest United Nations emissions gap report shows that global emissions continue to rise and will need to be cut at a rate of 7.6% each year for the next decade to limit global warming in line with the Paris Agreement. As our Director of Strategy and Policy, Alden Meyer, recently noted, the outcomes of the latest round of international climate negotiations, quote, must respond to the clear urgency of the science and the demands of people around the world for transformational actions to address both the climate crisis and the crisis of economic inequality and social exclusion. 
Alden has been involved in the climate negotiation process since it started in early 1991, and will be back at it again this year. You can find his updates from past negotiations and tune into updates from this year's meetings in Madrid on our blog at blog.ucsusa.org. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Jacob Carter. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Music and additional editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.